Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, let's open up to the Gospel according to Luke. Last couple of weeks we've been in Matthew. This is the third message in our Christmas series this year, the third Sunday of Advent. The first couple Sundays we looked at Matthew chapter 1, first the genealogy in Matthew, and secondly, the birth account according to Matthew. Today, we look at the angelic announcement to Mary, Mary's encounter with Elizabeth, and then Mary's Magnificat. 30 verses, beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, extending all the way to Luke chapter 1, verse 56. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Evangelio según Lucas, capítulo 1, versículos 26 a 56. Now, on the first Sunday of our Christmas series, we, we learned the theme of this series is that Christ is born for you. But what's entailed in that is that he was born from sinners, for sinners. And then last week, we learned the disturbing reality that he was born sinners to save, born for sinners to save them from their sin. We have a desperate need within us, and it's a, it's a dark need. It's a disturbing need. But the wonder of the gospel and the, wonderful, the wonder of Christmas is that God doesn't intend to leave us there. Beyond the disturbing reality of Christmas is joy. That's where we're going this morning. So if you don't have a Bible or if you've never read the Bible... Uh, or you just forgot yours at home, we have uh, extras under the chairs along the center aisle, or you can just open up your phone's browser and open to Luke 1, 26, and I'll do the rest. We'll be reading this morning from the ESV version, so with that, please follow along, beginning in Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, 
Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her, from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. Yet he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good Things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that once again, as was the case last Sunday, that what has become familiar to so many of us would not be familiar today. Would we encounter the announcement of the birth of Christ with the same enthusiasm and wonder and joy as Mary and Elizabeth did? Would we exclaim like Elizabeth did and say, who am I to receive such grace? Or would you still our hearts, still our minds this moment, this moment to, to listen, to learn, to behold you in your glory? Amen. Amen. The night is always darkest before the dawn. Have you ever heard that quote? Some of you have probably heard that quote or know it from a recent Batman film. Harvey Dent said it. But Harvey Dent didn't originate that saying. And what's also problematic about this quote is that it is meteorologically untrue. The darkness of the night varies according to the time of the night based on the, the cloud cover and the fullness of the moon and various other factors. So while a meteorologist might tell you that this is patently untrue, our hearts resonate with this statement that the, 
the night is always darkest right before the dawn. Because as a metaphor for human experience, as a metaphor for, for human suffering and trials and pain and life in a fallen world, oh, that resonates with us, doesn't it? That the night is often darkest right before the dawn. The origin of this quote actually originated with 17th century theologian Thomas Fuller. I was just researching this the other day, and I discovered, oh, it was a Christian who came up with this quote. Thomas Fuller wrote in a book that was about 900 pages long. I have not read it. I've read one page of this book that I read just two days ago. But in this page, in this book, he's discussing 1 Samuel 30, which is a really low point in David's life, in a life full of low points. But he and his army had just suffered defeat. And they return home, what was their home base at that time, which was the town of Ziklag, and the Amalekites had plundered Ziklag and had taken captive all of their wives and children. And the soldiers get back to Ziklag with David, and they're so discouraged and so disheartened that their response, let's just kill David. Look what he's brought us. And so they start talking among themselves, and they they say, let's just stone him to death. And David, all the while, has been straying from the Lord in these, in these last couple chapters. If you remember our series in 1 Samuel, and he brings, he finds himself at this extremely low point. And this is where Thomas Fuller makes this statement. He says, but David, to avoid being stoned to death, ran to God, his rock, for shelter. And there he found comfort. Just as it is always darkest before the dawn, so God allows darkness to intensify until we run to him for comfort and joy. The night does get darker and darker until we turn our gaze to the horizon God's mercy to see the dawning of joy. Listen, friends, last, last week we were confronted with the discouraging reality of Christmas, the disturbing reality of Christmas, that in order to understand correctly, accurately, rightly what the birth of Christ means, we have to admit that had it not been for our sin, Jesus would not have had to have been born at all. We have to confront the reality that the darkness within us and around us is desperately intense. But maybe you're arriving this morning, and maybe, maybe you heard last week's sermon, and you find yourself in a place where it's not hard for you to admit the disturbing reality of Christmas. Maybe you're just all too aware of that. Maybe that is your reality. Constantly struggling under the weight of condemnation from a week or a month or a year of falling into that same old sinful pattern. Maybe your marriage is in a really bad place this very moment. Maybe you're caught up in in oppressive grief while everybody around you is urging you to Christmas cheer. And you can find none of that. 
maybe the darkness just seems to be getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Maybe it's not right now, but maybe you found your pla- yourself in that place before. Maybe you're looking forward to a season where that might be your reality. If that's you, can I encourage you this morning to listen closely? Listen closely. Just beyond the disturbing reality of Christmas, just beyond the darkness, is joy. Is joy. John Piper says that the joy that Jesus came to bring is from outside this world. It's the joy that Jesus had with the Father. It's the joy that our hearts were created to experience. It's the fullness of joy that we were made to know in God and through God. What was the proclamation of the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 10? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Christmas is the announcement of the dawning of joy. Christ was born for you. Christ was born to bring you joy. Just when the night seems to be at its darkest, joy dawns on the horizon with the birth of Jesus. But, but, But how do we who are confronted with the darkness, receive this joy. It, it, it can seem like a, a paltry thing to say, I bring you good news of great joy, but the darkness still exists around us. How do we access this joy? How is dawn awakened in our hearts? Well, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56, tell us through Luke's account of the angelic announcement to Mary that joy is given to the humble. Joy is given to the humble. The birth of Jesus is the dawn of your joy and the death of your pride. If received with faith, the birth of Jesus is the dawn of your joy and the death of your pride. This passage, today's sermon, tells us that if you have been brought low... You have every reason not to be discouraged. How about that for turning the common conventions on their heads? If you have been brought low, you have every reason not to be discouraged, but every reason to be encouraged. If you are grievously aware of your sin and and the brokenness that it's caused, then joy is on the horizon for you in the birth of Christ, for the humble. So what does the humility that awakens the dawn of Christmas joy look like? Well, there are three postures of the humble person, okay? Three three admissions, if you will, that, that the person who is humble makes prior to receiving joy. Three, three postures, listen, that might even feel very dark, that might even feel discouraging in themselves, but the lead to the dawning of joy. This instructs us what it looks like to position ourselves in humility to receive joy. So the first of these postures is, is this. It's the admission, grace couldn't be for me. 
Grace could not possibly be for me. This is verses 26 through 38. There are three scenes in this passage. The first of these scenes is in 26 through 38. This is the angelic announcement to Mary of, of the conception of Jesus in her womb. And for the very first time, we're introduced to Mary. She's a young, poor teenager from, from a little town called Nazareth. And in the book of John, uh, different religious elites look at Jesus having come from Nazareth and, says, and they say, does anything ever good come from Nazareth? I mean, this was a side-of-the-road town, like population 50. Nothing ever came from Nazareth. It was insignificant, unnotable. And this Mary, she's betrothed to Joseph. They're betrothed to be married. And, and from the moment that's described in verse 28, the rest of her life would take a completely different direction, a direction that she never saw coming prior to this moment. So, so imagine this. Mary, she's in, in her tiny, likely one-room house. Maybe it's the middle of the day. Maybe she's just, she's just kind of doing housework, milling about. She's probably alone. And suddenly, standing before her is an angel. Suddenly. Who knows what this looked like? Likely, Gabriel, he's arrayed in, in glorious light. Doesn't look like your average person standing in front of her. He's obviously a messenger sent from God. And he speaks. Before she can even respond, he speaks, breaks into her reality, and he says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was, verse 29, greatly troubled. Was she greatly troubled that an angel of the Lord was standing in front of her? No. That's not what she was greatly troubled by. She was greatly troubled at the saying. At the saying, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. To this, Mary thinks, me? No, 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 Gabriel, you've got the wrong person. I'm so sorry. You made a mistake. Three or four no, no, not three, four houses, three, four towns down. That, there you'll find the person you're looking for. It, it can't be me. Mary knows she is poor. She knows she's nobody. She knows she's a sinner. But knowing her thoughts, Gabriel gently corrects her. He says, Mary, do not the right person. I've got the right person. You, verse 30, you have found favor with God. Just want to confirm to you, I'm not wrong. I haven't made a mistake. I came to you. You have found favor with God. The word there in verse 30 translated favor is almost always translated in the rest of the New Testament as what? grace. It's the Greek word charis. You have found grace with God. And how will this grace be experienced? Well, verses 31 through 36, through, or though being a virgin, 
by being chosen to bear in her womb the Son of the Most High, the one whose kingdom and reign will go on for eternity, who will sit on King David's throne forever. Listen, Mary teaches us, doesn't she? She, she thinks, no, no, Gabriel, you've got it You've got it wrong. I must not be the one who is worthy of this kind of grace. And we can read between the lines of Gabriel's response and understand him to say in verse 30, no, no, Mary, it is precisely because you don't think yourself worthy of favor that you've received favor. It is your humility that has qualified you to receive grace. We, 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 know, we know this to be true because the Bible says in James 4, 6 that God gives grace to the humble. But he, but he opposes the proud. Those who least expect God's favor are those who are most qualified to receive His favor. Why does God oppose the proud? Because the proud think they deserve God's favor. Because the proud says, I, I'm good enough on my own. Or at least I can make up for the wrongs that I've done. Or, or I've lived well enough, or I've, I've attained enough, whatever, to be in right standing before God. I've become a good person. Being proud in your own abilities. The proud does not see their need for a Savior. Friend, does the voice in your head sound like Mary's voice, greatly troubled at the prospect that you might receive grace? You think, certainly not me. How, how, how could I ever be forgiven by God? How could I receive His favor? Have you ever thought that? Is that the posture of your heart this morning? How could, it, how could he ever show me grace? Maybe it's, yeah, I, I, know, I know when I first trusted in him, he, he gave me grace, but since then I've fallen so far. I've done this and that and the other. I've thought all these things and I've given in to them and I've strayed away. How could he show me grace? The night of my heart is too dark for God's grace to ever dawn on the horizon. Hear me clearly. If that's you, then you have taken the first step toward receiving God's grace. That is the necessary first step. It's not even just a good option of a first step. It is the necessary first step because it's an admission that I can't earn God's grace and favor by myself. I need help to do so if I have any hope of receiving God's favor. Because I can't earn it. I can't deserve it in myself. And so the first posture is grace couldn't be for me that leads to the dawning of joy. The second posture is, I'm, I'm going to call it, I'm unfulfilled with all of this. Looking around your, your whole life and just concluding, I, I'm not completely fulfilled with all of this. 
I want to be fulfilled. I want to be satisfied, but I'm, I'm just not. It's the second posture. Gabriel concludes his encounter with, with Mary with verse 36, and he tells Mary to sort of confirm that, that what he's just told Mary is going to happen in her womb is possible because God has just made a woman named Elizabeth her relative, who's probably, no kidding, like 85 years old, that she's now in her sixth month of pregnancy. And Gabriel concludes and says, see, Mary, you, you will learn, and perhaps you are learning, that with God nothing is impossible. You may, you may be struggling to believe that, that what's going to happen that I've just announced to you will actually happen, but go see Elizabeth. So what, what does one do when one learns that one's 85-year-old relative is taking Lamaze classes and buying diapers for a baby that she's about to give birth to, what does one do when one hears that kind of a news? You go see for yourself. So Mary makes haste, verse 37 says, and goes to a town in Judah where her relative Elizabeth lives with her husband Zechariah. And Mary arrives at their home and says nothing more than, hello, Elizabeth, if she said anything at all. But at that word, at the greeting, the baby, who was John the Baptist, still just a fetus, moved by the Holy Spirit, leaps in her womb with joy. And not only that, but at Mary's greeting, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what, what Luke is saying there is that Elizabeth was, was given illumination by the Holy Spirit to understand what's happening right here, to understand who had just walked through her door. And, and, and upon that understanding, look at, look at, verse, look at verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. I mean, the, the wording here suggests that she just started yelling. She, she was beside herself. Imagine the scene. Mary has barely entered the house. And babies are leaping inside bellies and women are yelling. Mary's going, whoa, hold, hold the phone. What's going on here? But notice Elizabeth's words. Notice what she yells. Verse 42, blessed are you. Blessed are you. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then verse 43, why did God choose to give the gift of a visit from the mother of my Lord to me? In all my days, I never could have imagined to be in the presence of God in human form in the womb of my own relative. She's overcome with amazement. Listen, this is not the exclamation of a woman who is previously fulfilled and satisfied. Elizabeth was a woman with a longing who lived her life knowing that despite whatever priestly title her husband had, whatever 
whatever possessions they owned, whatever sweet family memories they had, she longed for something more. She longed for God himself. And that day she knew the satisfaction of her longing had entered her home inside Mary's belly. It was the Son of God come to her. The Son of God had come to her and she knew it. And she was overcome. She was overcome. Seeing the greatness of what God had done for her. Satisfied. Fulfilled. Listen, it's not enough to realize that you're not worthy. Because if you stop there, that only leads to condemnation. Saying, saying, I'm not worthy to receive grace, and then stopping there, that does no good for you if you don't go further. You have to be convinced that the Lord is enough. It's not enough to know you're not enough. You have to be convinced that the Lord is enough. To humbly admit you're an undeserving sinner is falling short of the finish line. Because Christmas, listen, Christmas doesn't just tell you Jesus was born to save you from your sin. It tells you that Jesus was born to save you from your sin. When we encounter him, we encounter what our, what our dissatisfied, unfulfilled souls long for. So if you're going through life, dissatisfied and unfulfilled, longing for something more. I thought that this would fulfill me, and I thought that that would fulfill me, and I thought that having kids would fulfill me, and I thought getting married would fulfill me, and I thought that having this amount of income would fulfill me, and I thought that living here would fulfill me, and I thought that having these kinds of friends would fulfill me, but I'm not. If that's you, once again, you're in the right place. You are on the right track. Dissatisfaction and unfulfillment, don't get me wrong, are dark nights. They're dark nights. When you admit the reality that I'm not fulfilled, and I long to be, but the night has to become dark to see the beauty of the dawn. Because in the birth of Jesus, you see the dawn of the soul-satisfying greatness that Elizabeth encountered. Because as, as theologian Jeff Schleter related to me in an email earlier this week, at Christmas, and this is so good, God came to us when we could not come to him to do for us what we could not do ourselves. God came to us when we could not go to him to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what Elizabeth saw in that moment when Mary entered her house. And you can bet your bottom dollar she realized that the satisfaction of her soul had just entered her home. It's the same kind of satisfaction that Simeon was overcome with when he says, Lord, now your servant can die in peace. I have seen what my life is all about. I've finally met my Lord. 
I have no more need for anything. You can take me now. And that, friends, that brings us to the third disposition. The first, the first being, grace couldn't possibly come to me. The second being, I'm unsatisfied with life. And, and note, these, these, are, these are scary admissions to make, right? These are dark admissions to make. The third, admitting, I have not found lasting joy. I've been searching for it, but I can't find it. Verses 45, or 46 through 55. And these verses, goodness gracious, I, I wish we had all morning to just look at these verses alone. Wish we had it all month. This, this song is what has traditionally become known as Mary's Magnificat. Elizabeth responds to the news that, that she has come into the presence of God in human flesh in the womb of her relative. And then Mary responds to Elizabeth's response with this marvelous song, which is really, it, it captures everything that's gone before us yet this morning and summarizes it absolutely brilliantly. But listen, I want us to really focus on the first two lines. Look down with me. Verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. There are two words that jump out here. Magnify and rejoice. Magnify means to boast. To boast. If Mary's going to boast about anything, it's not herself. We've already seen that. <laughs> she doesn't see herself as one worthy of this blessing. If she's going to boast, she's going to boast in what? In the Lord. That, that she has come into the presence of of God and received His favor. She will boast in Him and His mercy and His greatness and His goodness. The second word, rejoice, which means to, to exult, a word we don't usually use anymore, but to be exceedingly happy. Mary has found perfect joy. She has found lasting joy. And she's found it in God. To the core of her being, Mary rejoices. And listen, just like in our last point, part of finding perfect joy is, is admitting that, that, that I long for perfect joy and I haven't found it yet. If Mary had already found perfect joy, she would have no reason to rejoice in God, her Savior. Because she wouldn't need it, because she already has it. She would say, oh, thanks, thanks. God, for conceiving the Son of God in, in my womb, but I, I don't, don't really need it. I mean, I'll do, this, I'll do this thing for you as a favor, you know, but <laughs> I don't really have any need for this. No! No! She knows she has just encountered perfect joy. Once again, if you're here this morning and you have been searching for joy, admitting that you have not been able to yet find it among the people and the things and the activities of your life, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to admit that. C.S. Lewis, years ago, said, 
if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. God, his, God sent His Son from heaven, from another world, into our world to satisfy our longing for joy. That those who trust in Him might one day be carried off into another world devoid of sin and imperfection where our joy will be perfect and complete and eternally lasting. Admitting you have not yet found perfect joy, it prepares you to experience the lasting joy that dawns at Christmas. Friends, admitting that the joys of this life are incomplete joys, it's a good thing. It's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing. And look what Mary concludes in her song about God's treatment of the humble. This is what you need to see here in this song. Look at verse 48. He looks upon the humble estate of his servants. He sees and he cares for the humble. What a comforting notion that is. Verse 49. For, for, for lowly, humble ones like Mary, he does great things. And he proves his holiness and his righteousness to them. Verse 50, those who fear him, those who do not seek to assert themselves above him or try to live without him, but those who live in, in, in holy fear and reverence of him, receive his mercy. Verse 52, the lowly, the humble, those who have been brought low, what does he do to them? exalts them. He lifts them up. Verse 53, he has filled, he has satisfied who? The hungry. Verse 54, those who humbly serve, he helps. Listen, this isn't ethereal, some sort of ideology that he, he, he does this in, in a realm that we can't really personally experience. We don't know how he helps. We don't know how he lifts up and exalts. It all points forward to the cross. Because at the, at the cross, that baby Jesus would, would hang 33 years later, lifted up, exalted between heaven and earth. And on the cross, he would look on the humble estate Verse 48, he would look on the humble estate of the lowly and see our desperation for salvation. He would do the great thing of dying to take the penalty of our sin upon himself. See, on the cross, he would freely give his mercy through his substitutionary death. On the cross, he would exalt the lowly to the status of sons and daughters and citizens of his kingdom and saints as he descended into a grave. He would satisfy us. He would fill our hunger 
by uniting us with himself in his death and resurrection, securing for us an eternity of God's love and favor. All of this comes to fruition through the cross. Mary is prophesying about her own son. And the result of those who have received this from the Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas, what is the result of all this? It's joy. That's why this is good news of great joy. Because for those who humble themselves before him, who admit that I cannot find perfect and lasting joy apart from him, I cannot be satisfied and fulfilled apart from him, that I don't, receive, I don't deserve his grace, they've been coming before him and asking for him to be all that that they aren't and don't deserve. He is. Yes, he's all of it. He's sufficient. That produces joy. Now, it doesn't take much to imagine what God's disposition is toward the proud, right? In, in, in short, it's the, it's the exact opposite of his disposition toward the humble. So to those who believe that they are worthy of God's favor in themselves... To those who find fulfillment and satisfaction outside of God, to those who prefer the joys of this world over God himself, verse 51, he, he confuses them in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he brings them down. Verse 53, he sends them away empty. Now, while they may have riches and, and all the things of this world, while they are yet unsatisfied. In short, he opposes them. Friends, the joy of Christmas is for the humble and for those who are experiencing the death of their pride. And listen, the death of pride is not a painless death. The death of pride is not a painless death. Oh, we, we love the hold that our pride has on our hearts. It tells us sweet nothings about how good we are. It tells us, tells us what we deserve. It tells us how much better we are than the next person. It coddles our self-esteem. But when we put it to death and choose rather humility, acknowledging our dependence and our inability, oh, the death of that pride, it is painful. It is not pleasant. It is not fun. And oftentimes, the darkness that we feel is just the suffocation of our pride gasping for air. Oftentimes, that is, that is the darkness that we feel. It's the darkness of just being brought low. As our pride is in its death throes. So, as we move a conclusion here. I have two, two, two points of application, as it were. One question and one instruction. One question to, to ask yourself, and it's a very simple one. Ask yourself, why is it dark? Why is it dark? Why is this night, this dawnless night, 
Is God allowing your darkness to, to, in order that you might look to the horizon of His Son to see the dawn of joy? Is God revealing the imperfection of worldly joy and showing you the dissatisfaction of worldly pleasures to cause you to look to the horizon of the birth of His Son to see the dawn of perfect joy? Is God mercifully allowing the night to persist only so that you would set your eyes in the right direction where joy does dawn? If, if it's dark, don't look to other worldly horizons for the dawning of joy because what you will find is continuing in deeper darkness. Ask yourself, why is it dark? Might it be that the Lord is directing your eyes graciously and mercifully away from all that which has proven to not yet satisfy, to not yet bring you lasting joy, but to, to look to the horizon of the birth of His Son to see the true dawning of joy. So one question, why is it dark? One instruction to close out here. One instruction. Change your expectations for joy. Change your expectations for joy. We, we live in the entertainment capital of the world. Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farms, the ocean, every paid experience you can imagine, vacation spots all around us, TVs that stay on for, for a dozen hours a day, screens that are ever before us, beckoning us to, to look into the depths, to try to find some sort of satisfaction and joy. The birth of Christ bids us to look elsewhere for joy. And it shows us in, in a woman, verse 27, named Mary, who is poor. <laughs> Who's poor and insignificant. This woman has found joy that nobody else in this world has found any joy greater than. It, it has told us to, to look for, for joy in hunger because in hunger we will be satisfied when we look to Christ. It's told us to find, to find joy, verse 54, in service, in, in fear of the Lord, verse 50, in, in humility, in verse 48. That's where joy is found. Not in filling up at the, at the table of this world, but by feasting at the horizon of the birth of Christ to see the dawning of joy there, the, the, the admissions that you're not worthy, that, that you're dissatisfied, and that apart from Christ there is no lasting joy, if you admit these and turn your eyes to the horizon of the Savior born for you, you will see the dawning of joy. That's where it's found. That's where it's found. The birth of Jesus, friends. The dawning of your joy and the death of our pride. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have graciously and mercifully directed our eyes to the horizon that we need to see. And we thank you that at that horizon, what we have hoped to see rise above it has risen above it as you sent your Son to earth to be born for sinners. That in him we might have hope, we might have 
joy. We might have peace and comfort. We might be lifted up. We might be filled and satisfied. We might be truly happy in him. Lord, I pray that we would find ourselves to be happy Christians this Christmas season. Whatever our circumstances look like around us, whatever we're going through, whatever, whatever other people are saying or doing, whatever the behavior of our, of our neighbors and even those around us in our own family, Lord, would we be happy Christians because we have encountered Christ. Lord, I pray for anybody this morning who is dissatisfied, who, who encounters the disturbing reality of Christmas and struggles to pull themselves out of it. Would you comfort them? Would you cause joy to dawn on their hearts in your Son? In whose name we pray. Amen.